Welcome to Back from the Abyss, where we bring you stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. Date of evaluation and date of dictation, March 1st, 2008. Identifying information. 35-year-old married white woman living with her husband and two children, ages 8 and 5, self-referred to the clinic for a second opinion, quote, I thought I needed to have someone else look at my medications, end of quote. History of present illness. Maggie comes alone to the evaluation today after having walked into the clinic last week asking about a second opinion or even an inpatient stay to, quote, detoxify my system, end of quote. The patient reports that she's been in treatment with Dr. A over the last eight years, but is feeling like she's getting nowhere and continues to be very depressed. She reports an onset of depressive symptoms going back as early as third grade, and since then she's had countless numbers of depressive episodes, lasting hours to months, some precipitated by clear stressors and others appearing out of the blue. She experiences hopelessness and passive suicidality frequently, and this also goes back many years, although she was adamant that she would never try to kill herself. Quote, I could never do that to my kids, end of quote. I would never actually want to hurt myself. She struggled with depressive symptoms through much of her life, but when she had her first child eight years ago, she entered into a severe postpartum depression, and that is when she st- started seeing Dr. A. She says her mood has a very strong seasonal component, and she typically enters very significant depression in the fall and winter and feels better in the spring and summer. Lately, she's been very frustrated with her lack of progress and notes, quote, I keep feeling I'm never going to get better. I don't even know who I am right now, end of quote. She describes her current mood as mid-range, but said she can have drastic drops down to nearly zero, and these can happen very suddenly. She's had a 30-pound weight gain over the last two years and wonders whether this might be med-related. Her energy has been, quote, terrible forever, end of quote. Her libido's low. Her concentration has been, quote, terrible for years, end of quote. She describes her most significant stressors as, quote, feeling like my family has disappointed me, end of quote, and her weight gain. She spends a great deal of time ruminating on her weight, and she feels very disgusted with herself. She denies any history of binge eating or other eating disordered symptoms. She did have some panic symptoms last weekend when confronted by her sister-in-law about her continuing depression. She denies a history of risk-taking behaviors, periods of elevated energy with decreased sleep need, or sexual acting out. She does say that she's been wondering whether she has bipolar disorder, but she's asked Dr. A about this on a few occasions, and he told her that he feels she has major depression. She denies any trauma history. Past medical history. She was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome approximately 11 years ago, but said she has had abnormal periods her whole life. She typically has four to five periods annually and said these are typically preceded by approximately two weeks of severe irritability. She notes that her hair has been falling out in recent weeks and she's unsure why. Her hypothyroidism developed as part of her first pregnancy and she takes both T3 and T4 for this. She said her thyroid was checked approximately two to three months ago and her level was normal. She's never had a seizure or head injury. Family history. Her mother, sister, and two maternal aunts all have depression. Her mother also has alcohol problems and there's extensive alcoholism on the maternal side of the family. The paternal grandmother had electroconvulsive therapy and was in psychiatric institutions. Maternal grandmother also has depression. I think that I knew that maybe something was wrong, maybe that I was a little different, 
maybe that I was a little behind other kids at an early age, probably second or third grade. I always wondered why I didn't win the Junior American Citizen Award, you know, Mm -hmm. or the whatever, the Good Kid Award. My sibling always did. And I just struggled. I struggled. I think third grade was probably one of the biggest, as looking back as a child, I mean, just coming to school on time, turning homework in, focusing in the classroom, trouble with friends, um, feeling left out, feeling like I was just sort of like a step behind everybody else. I think it was depression. I, I feel like I knew something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think through adolescence, it became more clear in my sleeping habits. A school was the biggest hurdle for me. Um, getting out of school, you know, just finishing high school. I didn't know if I would finish high school. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what it felt like to be in your home as a child? Yeah, I think that um, I feel like my parents had a lot on their plate um, in a lot of different areas. I feel like they did the very best that they could. I've never been close with my mom, um, and that's always weighed heavily on me, um, just accepting what that relationship was, what it's, how it's changed. But I feel like I was, I just felt alone a lot. Mm-hmm. And like, I was really hard to love. Mm. That's how you felt, mm-hmm. h- hard to love. Yeah. I felt like it seemed, it seemed like it was easier for them to love my brother and sister. Mm. And that maybe, I don't know, that I just was a mistake or that I wasn't planned and that I was, I made things harder because I was there. I wonder if you're getting those messages directly from your parents or you were internalizing the lack of sort of emotional connection mm-hmm. from your depressed mother and your mm-hmm. overwhelmed father and, and internalizing that right. something was just not lovable about you. Probably a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you didn't, maybe didn't get what you needed, but as you pointed out, your parents were almost surely doing everything they could. Right. Yeah, I think that I, you don't know what you need until I think you have your own children and you see how important those things are. And then I think the role of truly a child and an adult, I think that information is, I I think knowing that, meaning I felt like um, I couldn't really be a child, I guess. Mm -hmm. I felt like I just... I look at my children now and I'm like, they are the child. I am the adult. I need to be taking care of them. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas my sister, my sister was my emotional support mm. a lot. And that yeah. was a very big burden on her. So she was taking care of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, definitely. Mm-hmm. We were very, very close mm-hmm. growing up. Because being a parent is, is tough enough. And it's if hard. you're struggling with alcohol or depression right. or your own trauma, right. it's too much. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And now that I'm a parent, I, you know, I realize there's a lot, there's a lot to figure out mm-hmm. and you try to do the best you can. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was struck Maggie when I just read the, the eval from 2008, a few minutes ago that I said, uh, that you had no trauma and I'm reminded, I'm thinking a couple of things here back in 2008. I think I did not, I know I didn't do a good job at screening for emotional abuse or and just neglect, mm-hmm. you know, I think in my mind, I thought, okay, you weren't sexually or physically abused, so you weren't traumatized. Right. But, you know, as I've gotten to know you over the years, I just picture you in that home and 
you weren't getting what you needed. It just there wasn't enough mm-hmm. love there and attention for good reasons, but there just wasn't. Mm-hmm. That makes me sad. It, yeah, it makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, it makes it me sad because I just, gosh, I don't would never want my kids to feel that way. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there was a a really hard time or low point during adolescence or childhood or I mean, you've described it to me before many times that mm-hmm. it was a lot of it. You don't even remember a lot of it. It was just, mm-hmm. I think you were just getting through. Mm-hmm. No one was mirroring back to you the good and bad things that were happening in your life. Right. I, particularly, I would say middle school. I mean, I don't know how that's a fun time for anybody, but looking back, that was the time when um, financially my parents sort of hit rock bottom um, and they were at their very lowest. I just felt like I was sort of out there wandering, trying to figure out high school alone. Um, I followed a lot in my sister's footsteps. Anything she did, I wanted to do. But yet, you know, I couldn't, I, I wasn't good enough to do the things that she had done. So I was always sort of in her shadow. Uh, my brother being, you know, nine years younger, he was always the baby and required a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I just got lost. And I feel, I remember lots of times in high school, sleeping all the time, um, not turning, you know, never turning work in. I can remember, you know, the counselor saying, she's probably not going to walk at graduation, mm-hmm. you know, if she doesn't get it together. And so, and I was athletic, but yet I was always, always ineligible. Mm-hmm. So I just, it's hard because I think about my own kids now and I'm like, gosh, if they ever were ineligible, if they ever were sleeping all the time, if they ever were struggling, I just, I, I see all these red flags that were happening when I was younger and I don't know why they got missed. Shame can come from a lot of places, but if we don't feel that our parents love us for our inherent worth, if we don't feel like we're good the way we are Mm -hmm. if we 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 internalize that even that lack of acknowledgement you know i think for so long um we thought of childhood abuse as being such a horrible thing and it is but there's something even as or more insidious about emotional neglect to not pour any love in the Mm -hmm. bucket of that little kid Mm -hmm. to not mirror back the good and bad things that are happening And you're so competent now. I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about how you're doing now. But when I think of you sleeping and being told that you're not going to walk at graduation or just, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that, yeah, I mean, I can imagine it because back in 2008 when we met, mm-hmm. you were in a terrible place. Oh, yeah. Some very dark, dark times. And I feel like I probably push a lot of that, pushed a lot of that away just to survive. Mm-hmm. I think on the outside, we probably looked like a pretty normal family, you know, Mm. like, and I think you just get really good at faking, you know, when you have to. And then when you don't have to, that's when you are not well. Yeah. You know, I had boyfriends in high school and I always sort of got close with that person's mom. Um, Just, I think just as I kind of clung to that kind of a relationship with a mother figure. But there's not an adult that I can really point to that I think Mm -hmm. shaped me or supported me or helped me outside of our family. Mm 
so you did go on to graduate from high school. I did. Uh, I did. I did graduate. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, tell us what happened next. I went to college to the same school that my sister went to because I didn't know what to do. Um, so I just sort of followed her and that was probably one of the lowest times for me. I, you know, I would hide in my dorm. I wouldn't go to class. I think my graduation, I think my, not my graduation, my GPA was a 1.7 when I left. Mm -hmm. So I tried for a year and I knew that I, I couldn't, that wasn't going to work. So I tried to figure out what I could do. Mm -hmm. And I started, that's when I became more independent financially, emotionally. I just decided, I don't know if I made the conscious decision, but looking back, I did a lot of things that were pretty brave thinking about it. I think about what I ever let my daughter do some of the things that I did at 18 and no, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, she could do them, but I, there are things where I'm like, I can't believe my parents let me do that, you know, but I just, I went and did a lot of different things on my own and I tried to figure out how to take care of myself mm-hmm. in lots of ways. Yeah. That's an amazing process, thinking of you um, in high school, sleeping and barely getting through school and then going and having a huge crash freshman year of college. Mm -hmm. And then somehow pulling yourself together to say, nobody else is going to do this for me. If I don't do it, it's not going to happen. Right. Just even working, um, when I did eventually go back to college, you know, I, I worked all the time, had two jobs, one on campus, one at a restaurant. And that's I kind of how I survived. Mm-hmm. I don't remember a lot of depressed episodes during that time when I was independent because I think one thing I've learned about myself through this entire journey is that I have to have a purpose. And I think when I didn't have anything to you know get up and go to or I didn't feel like I had a purpose or I didn't feel like I mattered, that just really contributed to my self-worth, my depression, my hiding, you know, feeling completely unworthy. So I think once I got out of sort of that box and saw that there was other things out there and that I could support myself Mm -hmm. um, and I could have other friends and they didn't have to be high school friends and I could get out of a small town and start to make something of myself. And that's what I tried to do. Mm -hmm. It seems like that was this deep, healthy part of you that was still alive. Mm -hmm. You know, as as, hopelessly depressed to sound like as you were then. There was this part of you that knew if you got out and yeah created some structure and mm-hmm. and purpose and meaning that you you would thrive. I think it was a little um, spark that wasn't completely burned out mm-hmm. of me. Mm-hmm. So. When did you first get into treatment? Because again, thinking, you know, this stuff goes back mm-hmm. into your early childhood, but when did you mm-hmm. start seeing a therapist or I, some, some mental health yeah. person? I think I first started, I mean, I, I remember all these issues with my menstrual cycle and that piece of it. And so that was when I was first put on an antidepressant and then I would start to feel better. And then I would stop taking it because I thought, well, it worked. So I'm okay now. This in your twenties? This was twenties. This yeah. was before I was married. Mm-hmm. And it was so it was very sporadic on it for three months and then completely off of it. And I also had a hard time 
paying for it because they didn't have insurance. So that was also a really big piece. I couldn't afford to stay on these medications because everything was out of pocket. So that was a piece too. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to take this until I feel better. And then, you know, I'll be okay for a while. So I think that cycle of on and off, on and off made it harder to treat me. Yeah. Over time. And was this about the time you started having thyroid problems? Yeah. yeah. The thyroid was um, right uh, right after my daughter was born. I knew something was very, very wrong. And I didn't know if it was the depression coming back. I didn't know if it was. But when they checked my thyroid, it was sort of off the charts hypothyroid. Yeah. So that they started me on medication with yeah. that. Yeah. Let's come back to the thyroid okay. in a minute. Okay. Because, you know, low thyroid looks, well, it causes a clinical symptom syndrome of depression right. with fatigue and oversleeping mm-hmm. and waking and, and cognitive clouding. But it, so I was reading about eval, I guess it was in, also in your 20s that you got diagnosed with polycystic ovarian mm-hmm. syndrome. Right. That too has been tied in with depression and with um, even there's some research suggests it could be linked to childhood neglect and trauma mm-hmm. and it has a familial component. What, what was your journey with polycystic ovarian syndrome and how that may have played out with the depression. Yeah, I boy, I had never I didn't even know what that was until an endocrinologist who was helping me with my thyroid. We just could not get my thyroid regulated with um just a general practitioner, so they sent me to a um endocrinologist then we started sort of diving into that and what normal numbers were and symptoms and how to look at that and and then they started looking at hormones and found that um, you know, through ultrasounds, they found that I do have polycystic ovaries. And that was that, you know, I would have cystic acne and I would have to go, I was on Accutane three times just to clear that kind of thing up. There was just a lot of... In your 20s? hmm Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, those kinds of things, I didn't know that were happening, you know, were, were going on inside me until I had someone say, Oh, maybe this is a problem. Maybe Mm -hmm. you have, you know, this hormonal component. And so when I had the hypothyroid, I had the polycystic ovaries. I mean, it was kind of the polycystic ovarian syndrome, major mm -hmm. cycle, really irregular. So and then were you having bad PMS then too? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so they put me on different pills and every time I would start a birth control pill, my, I would just get into this deep depression. So, I could not get those hormones regulated. Mm-hmm. So I got to where I couldn't take any kind of birth control pills for a psych- to regulate my cycle. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, because usually they just say, well, we'll just put you on the pill. That'll kind of regulate things. It'll sort of level your hormones out. And I was the 1% that it didn't work well on. Mm-hmm. So go, going into your first pregnancy, okay. you're in your 20s, mm-hmm. and you're already having all sorts of hormonal issues. You have clearly have major progesterone issues because of the P- PMS, pre- premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. You have um, androgen issues, which are testosterone, estrogen issues, and then the thyroid. Mm-hmm. And now you're about to enter childbearing where mm-hmm. during pregnancy 
have very, very high progesterone levels to maintain the pregnancy. And then right at birth, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, that postpartum is, for many women, the either the onset of horrible psychiatric stuff or the significant worsening of anything that they've ever experienced before. So that exact that's exactly right. That is when I tried to get help from Dr. A and I was that was he was referred to me and and so that's when I really started I'm going to I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure out what's wrong with me. And that was when right at let's see 8 years before I started seeing you because I had that sort of 8 year battle with am I getting better? What should I take? What shouldn't I take? And then came to see you in 2008. So that was around the year 2000, right when I had my first child that I, I knew I had to do something to figure this out. Yeah. What do you remember after you had your first baby? Um, Oh, it was just, I just, I never wanted my husband to leave because I was scared. And I, I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life by having a child. Cause Mm -hmm. I thought, what did I think I was going to do with this baby? What, what did I think that I was going to be able to take care of this child and be healthy and be a good mom? And I think that that played a lot into depression and shame and feeling like I can't do this. I, this was a bad, bad mistake. Mm-hmm. Was that one of the lowest points that you'd had? Mm-hmm. Yeah. After my first child, it was, it was rough, really rough. And that's when I sought, you know, I thought I've got to get some help with this. Yeah. Did you know what it was? Um, I didn't know a lot. I don't, yeah, I didn't know because it wasn't really talked about, you know, Mm -hmm. postpartum depression was not really, I mean, Mm -hmm. you didn't really talk about that. So I had the thyroid, I had the PCOS component, and then I was extremely depressed Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to do this. Right. I mean, you knew depression, but I think, you know, so many people would imagine that having a baby, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a joyous thing. Oh, sure. And and you've found this wonderful, Mm -hmm. loving husband and Mm -hmm. you're starting your family and- here you are right. um, just sobbing, overwhelmed. All the time. Yeah. All the time. I felt so bad for my husband. He didn't know what to do with me, you know. So he's trying to support our family. I was a stay-at-home mom. I didn't. I wasn't working out of the side of the home. So I was alone a lot. I mean, I was with her a lot, my daughter a lot. And so I just, oh, I, I just felt like I'm going to repeat the cycle of this mother-daughter unhealthy relationship. And, you know, I don't want that. So mm-hmm. that's where I thought I've got, I have to find somebody to help me. And that's where this journey began it was about year 2000 until yeah. now. It's still yeah. a journey. How about your second child? Did you have postpartum? Second child, we were, uh, my, you know, my doctor was like, okay, we got to watch out for this. I did stop taking antidepressants during my pregnancy. And then I tried to stay off of them as soon as my second child was born. And I, I couldn't do it. Because they were concerned about breast milk and, and things, you know, that show up in the breast milk as far as medications. And so I tried. I tried for about four months. And I, I was I can't, I'm not, like, I can't be a good mom mm-hmm. unless, I'm take, unless I have help. Mm-hmm. And I was ashamed. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just like, oh, because on the outside it looked really, looked good. Mm-hmm. You know, I was battling with my weight. I was battling with just a lot of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Was the second postpartum bout as severe as the first? No, definitely. The first was the worst because I wasn't taking anything, you know, any, I didn't have any kind of medication on board because I had kind of gone off and on, off and on. So as soon as we kind of got that straight, I knew that I had to get back on it after in about 2002. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, that's, um, and I'm wondering to the second postpartum depression, you knew what that was. Mm-hmm. You oh. could say, you know, you had, you had some reference point. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. I'm sure that was super scary going to that, but at least when it started to happen, you could say, okay, mm-hmm. this is a thing, and mm-hmm. you know, I have some sort of plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was really, it was good because I remember leaving the hospital with number two and being like, okay. I'm either going to be able to do this without medication, without an antidepressant, or I'm going to, I'm going to know that I need it. And I gave it a really good go. And I, and then I thought I can't be a good mom to these two children, you know, feeling like this low all the time and this worthless and this, you know, I just degraded myself a lot. So many people that I see that grow up with abuse or neglect unknowingly, unconsciously continue that cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so heartwarming and hopeful for me when I see someone who's broken it, that there, there just was not much love flowing downhill to you and your family. There, there wasn't a lot sloshing around. I mean, it was kind of survival mode for your family. Right. But you have been able to find this well of love within within you and and pour that down to your kids which mm-hmm. to me that, that's if you can be love and loving and patient with your kids mm-hmm. that's 90% yeah. of it right there mhm yeah and then i i just i hope i mean i think okay when they have their kids then we'll have even gone a step further you know in another generation of breaking this because you know, with my children, we talk about these things. We talk about mental health. We talk about how we're feeling because I used to be so, so ashamed Mm -hmm. and I don't want them to feel alone Mm -hmm. with any of that stuff if they're experiencing it. Yeah. How about if we could talk a little bit about your shame that you held on for so long as a wife? Mm -hmm. Again, for as long as I've known you, you've spoken so glowingly and lovingly about your husband. He is mm-hmm. an awesome dude. He's a he great is. guy for yeah. sure. And I've mm-hmm. met him a bunch of times, but I also thought you're equally awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and I, even from the get go, when you were in such a terrible place, I mm-hmm. thought, Oh yeah, I can totally see where these two got together. Yeah. But it seems like for you, that's been a long journey. And he was up on a pedestal yes. for so oh. long because he was supporting the family and he was, emotionally supporting you and as you said even uh mothering wise he's telling you hey you're you're doing great Mm -hmm. but that worried me for a long time that he you could have held him above you and i thought you know i kind of challenged you on this Mm -hmm. saying he's your partner and you need to really Mm -hmm. yeah that's um 100 percent true (laughs) all of that and i think when we met um i just couldn't believe that he was interested in someone like me and he didn't know all my baggage and all my struggles and mental health but um he was interested in just me as a person and you know I kept thinking wow I have really married up you know you hear people say well he married up or she married up well I was like wow I really married up and you know over the years you know you see that nobody's perfect and um he just 
you know, he wasn't going to go anywhere. And I think that's exactly what I needed. Mm. Um, and, but I did, I did. I absolutely thought, gosh, I'm never going to be skinny enough. I'm never going to be together enough on time enough. I mean, we were very, very different. Mm. <laughs> um, and so instead of fighting against that, I think that we have had to learn that you need both of those things. Cause if you have too much of one, it's over. If it's too much, if you have not enough, you don't get anything accomplished. Mm-hmm. So I think that just our personalities are a good match. But I used to think, gosh, I, I need to be more like him. I need to be up in the morning. I need to be working out. I need to be efficient in everything I do. Um, and I just looked up to that so much because I wasn't raised like that. I don't have parents that are go, 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 productive. Let's make a plan. Let's execute it. Let's set a goal. And that's who I married. Mm-hmm. So I almost feel like I gravitated towards that because I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. So that was so safe. It's like he, you married a life coach. Oh, yeah. And I was just, it was so safe. I was like, okay, he he says something and he means it. And when mm-hmm. he says he's going to be there, he's really there. And over and over and over, he just kept doing that. And so I finally started trusting that maybe I was something, you know, mm-hmm. that was a good thing for him and a good mom. Um, yeah. It's taken a lot of years. I mean, yeah. 24 years. Yeah. So I guess, you know, one of the, most powerful ways we change is through relationship mm-hmm. and you were deeply damaged by some of your early relationships mm-hmm. and not anyone's fault or anything. That's just what happened. Right. And you found a lot of healing from shame through your marriage and through your kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I think about, wow. I, you know, I think um, I always worried if I was right for them, if I was enough for them and, through my struggles, they sure have showed up for me, not even really knowing it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's been a good, uh, it's been a beautiful story. And I just, I'm so glad that I got on the other side of it because there were some very dark, dark days where I didn't know if I was going to survive it. Speaking of that, maybe we could transition a little bit to Meeting Me, 2008. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you remember from those early days of working mm-hmm. together? And then we'll explore from there. Yeah. Well, when I walked into the outpatient facility where you worked, I I didn't have an appointment. I just, I I knew that I needed help. Um, and I was, I was very close to... Probably, I mean, I, I don't ever, I never, well, I wouldn't say I never had a plan, but I had a lot of things in my head, like I, they would be better off without me. Mm-hmm. So, and I walked and I said, I need someone to help me. And the receptionist said, well, we have a lot of people here, you know, what, what, you know, who are you? Do you have insurance? What, you know, all those things. So she said, I think I know, I think I have a doctor that might be perfect. And I said, okay, like, is is he ready for this? Cause this is a lot. This is (laughs) is a lot. And so we made an appointment and I remember the first time I, I thought I can't do this. And I came in, I remember what I was wearing. I remember that I hadn't, I had taken a shower because that was a struggle for me. My hair was wet. Um, I was in really baggy clothes because I couldn't find anything that fit. And I was just so ashamed. And I was in the waiting room thinking, what if somebody here sees me? What if they see who I am and they know that 
I'm this person's wife and the gig is up, you know, like then everyone's going to know my secret. Mm. So I have very, yeah, specific memories and, you know, coming to see you, I, that's the first time I ever felt hope. And the quote that you said was, (laughs) so like, no big deal, nonchalant. You said, we're going to get you feeling better. And I looked at you like, well, you know, you're not, there's no way you can get me feeling better because I have tried 17 different medications I have tried and you, I don't know that you can help me. I mean, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to challenge you. And that's when we started kind of detoxing me and getting me off of things and figuring out what worked, what didn't work. Was I bipolar? Was I majorly depressed? Was, was it just PMS? So it was like a web of stuff to sort of untangle. Yeah. You were on, I just looked at my notes. You were on 60, 60, 60 milligrams of Ritalin methylphenidate when we match mm-hmm. immediate release. Mm-hmm. That's pretty crack cocaine-ish. Yeah, but I was. Yeah. And I you thought were maybe. so fatigued. Yeah. I think I was your, so your prior doc was just trying to help you get mm-hmm. out of bed. Exactly. Yeah. And then I, once I would take all of that Ritalin, I was zipping around and I thought, well, this must mean I am bipolar because I thought that was the manic side of that, um, which, you know, come to find out once I got off of all that medication and I had sort of a baseline, I could, we could go from there. Mm-hmm. Well, our work together, I learned so much in working with you. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons, many reasons I wanted to do this episode today. Uh, in med, at least in my med school, one of the things they pounded in our head was diagnosis guides treatment, diagnosis guides treatment. I mean, it was like one of the mantras we heard. Mm-hmm. And um, in my psychiatry residency, we would joke about, well, psychiatric diagnosis is a little mushy. With you, uh, your path, our path to trying to find a diagnosis was complicated, mm-hmm. frustrating. It was. Um, yeah. W- what is your memory of you and us trying to work through you know, what was wrong? Um, well, I was terrified to be in a category. You know, it sounds, it sounds interesting because I didn't know what was wrong, but yet I was like, gosh, don't put me in that box because that means I'm really crazy. You know, and I can remember I was when you said, I think we should try lithium. We had tried several medications and I was like, I, that's, I cannot be on that medication. That is for really, that is for people who need, who are very, very sick. And I, I had that in my mind, the stereotypical idea of what that medicine was. And, and that's what saved my life. I think that medication, and I'm not on it anymore, but to get me through that rough, rough, dark time, I had to. I had to try anything, mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember thinking lithium because you were so hopeless and you had mm-hmm. such, you know, impossible to, to treat depression mm-hmm. seemed. And I thought when we first met back in 2008, that you probably were in the bipolar tent. Mm-hmm. You had such early onset depression. It was so severe. You had seasonal worsening. You had what we call hypersomnia, oversleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, family history of a ton of depression, including grandmother with ECT. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking that, that, and I wrote that in my eval in 2008, I thought you were probably bipolar spectrum, but the more I've known you over the years and you and I have had many, many conversations about this. I don't think that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't either, yeah. but boy, I did. I buy a lot of books on it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted to figure out what, you know, what was wrong with me. Yeah, But I think in it, and maybe we can explore this a little now because, you know, words can be pejorative and this word can be very pejorative, but I don't, I'm not meaning it that way. And that I think one of your 
two primary, if maybe three primary issues is that you're very hormonal. Mm-hmm. And yes. in all sorts, in that you have autoimmune attack on your thyroid, you have Hashimoto's, you have mm-hmm. polycystic ovarian syndrome, and you are clearly exquisitely sensitive to progesterone mm-hmm. because as progesterone drops at the end of the menstrual cycle or plunges at the end of birth, it wrecks you. And I think one of the most important things I, I learned from working with you was that um, that hormones can not only completely wreck people, but they can mimic everything. So mm-hmm. because your menstrual cycles have been so erratic, it's it took you and I, I think, years to yep. figure out that some of these suicidal mm-hmm. rapid onset depressions were actually PMS. Mm-hmm. But because they were occurring months you know, or many, many weeks after your last period, we never knew what they were. Right. And I think some, you know, people say, well, you know, uh, go ahead and track your track your cycle track when you're craving this when you feel bloated when you feel you know maybe you have some acne whatever track those things and then we'll figure out what your cycle is well I would try that and it's there wasn't anything that was trackable I just knew that every two or three months I would just bottom out Mm -hmm. and you know I, I remember you saying I think in one of my sessions where my husband was there you said you know this is these hormones are so powerful and you said, I have seen women who want to get a divorce every single month because of their hormones, because of their PMS. And I thought, oh, is that a normal? That's maybe other people feel that way too. It's just so drastic and it's so intense. And when you're in the middle of it, you know, you don't see anything other than that. You just, you're in it, you're in the fight. And then it sort of goes away, mm-hmm. sort of three, four days and you come down and you're like, okay. And I can remember my husband saying, I know you're going to be different in three days. Mm. And he just, he's, I said, I'm just going to wait until you come back. Come back mm-hmm. to me. was that for you to increasingly realize that the main well i think there's two main issues i think the emotional neglect in your childhood was huge um but how exquisitely hormonal you are Mm -hmm. was that was there any kind of comfort in knowing that or did that feel somehow bad Mm -hmm. because it didn't fit into any neat boxes well i think it felt bad because I mean, you know, it's it's kind of men, you know, kind of joke sometimes about when their women, when their wife is, you know, hormonal or you know, and so you kind of get that rap of like, well, she's just going to be really nasty for these few days, you know. And I didn't want to be like that kind of a wife, um, but you know, as we played with medication, you know, you would say, okay, so when you feel this coming on, this is what I want you to do, and I I learned to list to listen to my body and then. I would just follow the directions that you would give me, and it it helped. Um, I think I just wanted to feel better. I got to a point to where I was like, "Call it whatever you want, you know, make it up, make make up, but let's make up a new diagnosis because I can't, 
you know, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. I can't, I have to fix this. Mm -hmm. I have to fix it. Mm -hmm. So I think just hanging in there, you know, lots of appointments I did not want to come to. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) And and I, I I find it again, really interesting and, and hopefully helpful for people listening that you've had epically severe chronic depression. Mm-hmm. And the main medicine you take right now to prevent and treat depressive symptoms is an SSRI. And as I've talked about in this podcast, in general, SSRIs are not antidepressants. They're anxiety meds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't really work for depression, but they work really well for one kind of depression. And that is progesterone mediated depression. Mm-hmm. And, and that seems to be because SSRIs can slow down the metabolism of progesterone to kind of smooth out the progesterone plunge with the end of the cycle and the end of postpartum. Mm-hmm. But I, again, I find as a psychiatrist, I find that fascinating that we had to go you, and your, pre, your previous talk through so many different kinds of treatments mm-hmm. and meds to circle mm-hmm. back to say, oh, we just need to put you on an SSRI mm-hmm. at varying doses to smooth out your progesterone, get your thyroid managed. And this might be a good thing, time to, or a good time to move into this idea of love and work. You know, you and I have mm-hmm. talked about that a lot. That, oh yeah. You know, Freud said that what keeps people happy and healthy is Lieben und Arbeiten, love and work. And you've always had love in your life, although I think not really love for yourself or mm-hmm. compassion. That took a long time. Mm-hmm. But you know, as we figured out how to sort of stabilize the storm of your hormones, and as you finally heard and felt in your heart from your husband and your kids that you are a kick-ass mom and an awesome wife. Mm -hmm. You also went back to work. Mm -hmm. I did. Tell us about that part. It was just such a big deal. Uh, Yeah, I went back to work. I pursued something that was always of interest to me. I got a job pretty quickly after I finished school. Um, I was hired and I started working shifts, shift work, which was 12 hour shifts. And that I had to play with that. I thought, okay, this isn't good for my sleep. If I work a night shift, then, you know, so that was a piece of it that we had to figure out. Um, but going back to work was huge for me. And recently, in why the last, was it? Could you say more about yeah, that? Because I had a place to be mm-hmm. and I didn't have to sit with myself. I mean, I can remember tell, I believe I, um, it was either you or maybe even Elizabeth at one of my sessions. I said, I feel like the people that stay in bed all day should just be people that have cancer or people that are sick, that are truly, you know, they can't get up. And I'm so mad at myself because I, I'm acting like that kind of a person and I don't know how to control it. Mm -hmm. And so having a place to go, having a purpose, feeling needed, it was everything. I mean, everything. I think that that turn, I mean, once my children got older and I realized, okay, I don't need to be there. You know, I, they have their own lives. They, you know, I think I, I can still be there for all their events, but I can also have something for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so hard for women to mm-hmm. just give themselves the gift of this is my thing. You know, I'm not, I am a mom, I am a wife, but I am also good at this div separate of all of that. I can be good at something and I can make a difference and I can, you know, make an impact in some yeah. way. Yeah. Big yeah. or small. Yeah. I like that comparison to cancer, but I would say that, you know, when someone, and you, you've experienced this, when you're in a severe depressive episode, mm-hmm. you are as incapacitated as if you had metastatic, you know, mm-hmm. breast cancer or something. But I think what happened with you 
and what I've seen with a number of people is once we got you better, more in the mild to moderate range, meaning you were still mm-hmm. um, having times when you're struggling, but you weren't severely incapacitatingly depressed. Work was so crucial because yeah. it made you get up, take a shower, get dressed, leave. Yep. And everyone who meets you loves you because you're just <laughs> you're just so engaging and awesome. And I remember you telling you that, like, Maggie, you need to go out mm-hmm. and be with people because that kind of, their energy will will nourish you. Will feed and, me. Yeah. I remember one thing that you said, and I use this now, even with my kids. You said, um, there's a reason why solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments you can do, you know, give someone because we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to sit at home and be alone all the time with our thoughts. And obviously solitary confinement is, you know, quite the extreme, but the idea of that as you need to be around people, you know, and be, I remember you would say, go take a painting class. I don't care what you do. And one thing that you always, I said, well, I can't do that because I can't just go take a class because I'm not going to make any money. And you said, I don't care. You said, you have got to do something and I don't care, you know, what it is, but you have to, you have to find something to engage your mind. So you're not just ruminating and, mm-hmm. you know, f- being swallowed up mm-hmm. by these thoughts and, you know, hopelessness and loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned that I can feel it coming on. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm start. I just don't, you know, I feel really weepy or I feel really low or I feel really tired. And, and I used to beat myself up over that. Like, okay, well snap out of it. And now I feel like I have to listen to myself, listen to my body and sort of adjust things. If I need to say no to some things and just be home, I just did that last week. I said, you know, I'm not going to go do this. I need to, I want to be home. I need to be home. I need to be just sort of centered. And I think just, giving yourself permission and grace to have bad days and figure it out and have a support system. I mean, you have to find those people somehow. I mean, my sisters have been a huge piece of, I say recovery, but of me becoming sort of stable because they took those phone calls when I was, I couldn't stop crying, you know? And I think you just have to have those kind of relationships where you feel safe. I would say recovery. I mean, you weren't an addict, but I mean, maybe a bed addict. Right. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but, for sure. But you, I mean, you are in recovery from mm-hmm. debilitating depression. Yeah. And it, I'm not afraid anymore because I, I remember thinking, okay, what if this comes back? I would say to you, what if this comes back? What are we going to do? Like we've, I finally came out of this dark, dark darkness. What happens if it comes back? And you would say, we're going to, we're going to figure it out again, you know? And don't be, if I, it's hard to live in fear when you start to feel healthy and then you think, well, what if, what if? So I've learned to just don't be afraid, you know, take it one day at a time. Don't be so hard on yourself, you know, cause it's, there's a lot of people out there that are going to go ahead and do that for you, you know, so try not to do it to yourself and have a good doctor. In the weeks prior to recording Maggie's episode, She and I discussed her story and what was her truth, what most needed to be said. In every part but one of her difficult journey, she was very eager to share her experience with listeners. However, 
she was very hesitant to talk about her childhood at all. And this touched on a question that has been extremely painful for us to explore. Was she emotionally neglected or not? Were her parents somehow to blame? Was she unfairly judging her early home life? For when clinical depression develops in third grade, something is clearly very wrong. I've come to realize that trying to assess for emotional neglect, trying to figure out whether my patient got the love and caring that they needed, it's a little like asking an adult fish, if a fish could chat, of course, if that fish had had adequate oxygenation during the crucial formative years after hatching. How do we assess for that which is missing, or that which is present but insufficient? How do we evaluate whether something is normal, if that's all we've ever known? Children raised without enough love and attention almost inevitably internalize the resulting emotional deprivation state as signifying that they were not enough, that they were and are unlovable, that they're somehow deeply broken. I did an episode in season one called What's the Deal with Depression? in which I explored the idea that depression is a syndrome, the final common pathway of a long list of possible causes and exacerbating factors. In Maggie's case, her depression arose out of a likely genetic predisposition, as depression runs rampant in her family, as well as emotional neglect, which deeply damaged the taproot of her being. For Maggie's first 25 years, she struggled with connection and purpose. She then developed hypothyroidism and polycystic ovarian syndrome and found out the hard way that the progesterone plunge of her first postpartum period would nearly be her undoing. Maggie's healing came through her relationships with her husband and her children. Her healing came through her faith. It came through lithium and SSRIs. And eventually healing came through stabilizing her hormonal storms. And as her children grew up, healing came from working outside the home and finding an expanded sense of purpose. Maggie and I still don't have a clear DSM diagnosis for her, but then, does that even really matter? It's kind of nice when diagnosis guides treatment. Alas, that just doesn't seem to happen that often in psychiatry. And maybe that's okay. 